Morrison attacks workers and children. Real wages cut. Billionaires are not the answer to climate change. No, they are not. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am your co-host, Ben Davison, and joining me, as always, is the proud Marxist, anti-billionaire, activist, (laughs) author of QAnon and On... The great, the glorious, the comradely Van Battam. How are you, Van? I want everyone to know that Ben is wearing a T-shirt that I bought him, which is a Roy Lichtenstein-style depiction of Admiral Akbar from the original Star Wars trilogy saying, it's a trap. It's a trap. Because <laughs> that's how we roll. Like, you all know we're big nerds, right? You do know this. Well, if they didn't before then, before now, they certainly do. And, of course, you're wearing your Dark Quiet Death T-shirt, which anyone who hasn't seen Mythic Quest uh, on Apple TV, made by the makers of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, great show, and the Dark Quiet Death episode is just remarkable, out of the box, uh, heartwarming. And the merch. Well, I actually cried in it, so I didn't find it quite heartwarming so much as, yeah, but it is an amazing episode of an incredible show. We are both Mythic Quest fans here. And it's funny because we have Dark Quiet Death t-shirts but not Mythic Quest t-shirts. I oh, know, right, because we're niche. <laughs> we're really niche. We are niche. And, Van, I want to talk about something just jumping straight in because it's already been a huge week and as they say on 30 Rock, it's only Wednesday, Lemon. It's Morrison going after both workers and children in the space of 24 hours. Uh, It's just, it's like victim roulette or target roulette is what the government are playing at the moment. So a bit of context, everybody. Polls aren't looking good for Scott Morrison. No, there was a Morgan poll out, I think it was yesterday or the day before, that had Labor up 57.43. Now, Morgan polls... Uh, generally do skew a little more labour, uh, but that is that is out there. I don't think I've ever seen a 57-43. No, to put this in, in context, everybody, 58-42 was the margin by which John Curtin won the election in 43. Um, 42 or 43, I can never remember which election it was. During the Second World During War. During the Second World War when, you know, we were winning. So, and that was the election where Labor won the entire Senate. Like a really wonderful moment in Australian politics, can I just say, um, in, in fairly unprecedented circumstances. But the idea that Annie Albanese is approaching curtain levels of, uh, of polling ahead of the election is kind of extraordinary. But fair play to Albo. I, I mean, you and I have both known him a long time. Um, obviously, the, the facts on Albo are, that he's sophisticated parliamentarian, very good at tactics and strategy. He was Deputy Prime Minister of Australia. And was Deputy Prime Minister of Australia. I was getting to that bit. He also was Minister for Infrastructure and the rest of it. But, you know, it's something about the leadership a couple of months ago when he got the new glasses and started dressing like who he is, which is someone from... In the inner city and the and the left of the Labor Party. Like once he just embraced it, his you could just see the seriousness that he. I think he thinks he can win it now. I think he's seeing himself in the big job, and I think it's really changed. Like there's a there's a there's a change in the vibe. 
I think is the technical term. Oh, absolutely. And, it, and it's feeling hopeful and serious at the moment. Well, and, and the flip side of that is the change in the vibe that's coming out of the Liberals and the Morrison camp, right, is just so overwhelmingly negative. Really, you can you can just like you can kind of trace Albo's uh, change of vibe to change of outfit, change of outlook, you can go back to Morrison's press club speech earlier in the year and from that point on it's really been absolute chaos from the Morrison camp and this week we've seen the full gamut. I mean, in the last 10 days he's attacked trans children, uh, China. China, China unions and back to trans children just this week. We've seen New South Wales Liberals lock out train drivers. And this, of course, comes after a couple of weeks where we've seen nurses go on strike, teachers go on strike. But, of course, there are some key differences between a lockout and a strike, right? Yeah, and it's really simple. A strike is when workers go, yeah, we're not doing this. We're withdrawing our labour until you come to the bargaining table. Whereas a lockout is when employers go, we are locking you out, physically locking you out of the workplace and not letting you work um, because we are going to deny you rights until you do what we tell you to do. And they are significantly different. And frankly- <laughs> Yes. <laughs> One is an, is an act of workers trying to come to the bargaining table and the other is an act of employer pressure. That's right. And that's what- we saw on Monday in New South Wales across the train network, and yet at the exact time when the New South Wales Liberals, through their state-owned corporations, were locking out workers, you had news, not just Liberals in New South Wales, but Liberals around the country, Morrison, Cabinet Minister Michaelia Cash, who, of course, is based in WA. Ben's favourite person. Amanda Stoker, who I believe is from Queensland. Probably my favourite person, is she mine? Yes, uh, she's from Queensland. Of right course. around the country, the Morrison Liberals were ramping up, calling this a strike, saying this was the sort of thing people could expect more of, that this was unions causing chaos. Uh, David Elliott, who is the New South Wales Liberal Minister for Transport and Don Perrottet. Yeah, um, Elliot, let's remember, was the Minister for Police who said that he'd happily let cops um, strip search his own children. He's that guy. Like, they were all out in the media calling it a strike, saying that it was the union's fault. And, of course, what happened over the course of the morning was that actually there were photos of train workers locked out of their workplace. Yeah, they turned up up. to work. They had absolutely turned up to work and were not allowed to work as a decision made by. Who was that decision made by then? It was made by the CEO of Sydney Trains. Uh, Yes, which required the permission of whom? Oh, the New South Wales Liberal government in order to enact it, which is a fascinating detail which came out today. Absolutely. And, you know, Elliot has tried to say, that he wasn't informed, that the decision was taken after midnight, and that even if they had tried to call him, he wouldn't have answered. This, of course, has spurred Perrottet into damage control, saying ministers work all the time and the minister needs to think about his own work. Like all this kind of... Yes, we all know the kind of work New South Wales Liberal ministers tend to do, don't we, Daryl? But one of the things I... Darren? (laughs) Who, David? David. (laughs) 
You're talking about Elliot? No, I'm talking about Maguire. Oh, like, Daryl. Yeah. That was Daryl. It was Daryl. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, oh, Daryl. Oh, so many scandals ago. I'm even getting the I'm names not sure wrong. he was a minister. You just you seem to have access to a lot of them. Um, you know, the, one of the things that I think is really interesting about this fan is that, you know, the, the workers, and, and we've talked about this before on the show, right, because workers have reached out to us over the last few weeks because this negotiation's been going on for months. Yeah, absolutely months. And and the workers had voted to take some form of industrial action, but they were work bans that would have only really impacted management. So things like overtime bans, things like basically refusing to do unsafe work, these sorts of um, these sorts of actions that well, this is the issue in New South Wales is that the union have legitimate safety concerns about the operation of the public transport network. And we've seen all these problems in New South Wales, everything from, you know, the mcgazillion dollar trams that didn't work and uh, trains that were built overseas that turned up that have cracks in them, like all these sort of crazy, mis- essentially symptoms of system mismanagement that have been going on in New South Wales. And the union has you know, has been onto these and also looking at things like security and the rest of it, there are massive occupational health and safety issues here that the union are trying to get redressed, as one would hope, because things that go wrong with the rail system tend to impact a lot of people in quite a damaging way. Absolutely. And any system that requires people to consistently work overtime, to always work overtime, is a broken system. Totally. And and it is an understaffed system and an under-resourced system. So this this entirely falls at the feet of New South Wales Liberals. So for Morrison to come out uh, and take swings here, you could see he was immediately trying to say that this was about Labor and the unions. It was just some old standard Liberal Party union bashing and the idea that they spent hours calling it a strike when the facts were on record. That was no strike. This was employer action against those workers who turned up to work was disgraceful. But, of course, when it comes to the Liberal Party and the accusation of lying, I don't think. I know. Yeah, well, that's right. Morrison is really very, very desperate. And it comes back to what we started talking about, which is that the the mood, the vibe has changed. The polling now is consistently getting worse for Morrison, better for Albanese. His his behaviour is increasingly erratic. Anyone who saw the pictures of him welding, uh, which I covered off on the weekend wrap, where he takes off his mask at the moment the arc flare, but like, but he even said to them that he'd done this sort of thing before. You know, like it. It's this kind of just choose your own adventure, choose your own reality for Scott Morrison at the moment. He wants it to be a strike because that feeds his narrative. Having the Industrial Relations Minister, who should be actually bringing employers and and unions to the table to resolve these issues, coming out and attacking the workforce is an outrageous politicisation of what is actually a fairly standard employment negotiation, which is we're under-resourced, things aren't as safe as they need to be, we want to negotiate a fair collective agreement. For, for the New South Wales trains to shut down over those sorts of demands, those sorts of quite reasonable demands, is ridiculous. And some people are saying that actually the 
the train corporation has employed some of the former Qantas HR people who were responsible for grounding Qantas as part of their industrial dispute. Oh, let me guess, because, you know, they take no prisoners and, yeah, yeah, they understand it's industrial war and, yeah, yeah, they're really going to put the screws on the workers. But well done, everybody. You've got just as big a disaster in the public transport system in New South Wales as they left behind at Qantas. Good O. It's really, really important, I think, you know, we always say it, and I'm going to say it again, you need to join your union. We've seen in New South Wales the Liberals there attacking teachers, attacking nurses, attacking train drivers. You know, it's nonstop. And it's really because those workers stood together. You know, Alex Classens and the RTBU. Oh, they were having none of Mark it. Mark Diamond. I thought they were so good because they just fronted it immediately. They got all the all the pictures. The work the workers were taking of themselves, going, "Why am I not allowed to work?" Uh, you know, they they were just relentless with the media, and they turned it around because it was absolutely shocking that that got reported as a strike. Like that was a lie. That was a fundamental mistruth. And the union did not back down. They kept going. And I think Australians have been absolutely outraged by this. It's been interesting to see. Not to mention, like I'm, as you remind me in various tones of voice, I am originally from Sydney, and the rail network is the bloodstream of Sydney. Mm. Like it shifts so many people. Is like I used to catch the public tra- the public trains to school, mm. you know, mm. as a kid, and that you, you can't like like the chaos of taking people. Like and out was, of that system is it was on the day when Dominic Perrottet had said people should go back to the office, that universities were going back, that international arrivals were coming back. And of course, Morrison and Perrottet tried to spin this as an attack. At one point, the words terrorist was were used. And like this is an you know outrageous lie. And David Elliott should resign. And if he's not going to resign, he should be sacked. Dominic Perrottet should apologise to those workers. Morrison should apologise to those workers. The RTBU is out today. And every commuter family in Sydney as well. And it it goes to show, you know, Morrison doesn't have anything to offer the people of Western Sydney. You know, the reality is that the material... Uh, conditions of the people of Western Sydney have declined under the Morrison government and under Dominic Perrottet. We had all they, that; those were the communities that suffered most through COVID in New South Wales. They are the communities that are told the most uh, in terms of using the highways. They are most reliant. Yeah, you can't. It's very difficult to get out of Western Sydney without you know, paying for a Liberal government buddy deal on a toll road. They are reliant on public transport. Uh, They are in the most... Not that public transport goes everywhere in New South Wales because there are... it connects everywhere. No, well, this is what I mean. Like, there are so many... Uh, you know, contracts with private providers, like, you know, it's it's not for the- Patchy at best. Patchy, yeah. It's public transport, but but not for all of the public. You know, and we, we've seen, and we'll talk about it a little more because some numbers have come out today, wages have gone backwards. The, the, the people who live in this part of the world are in more, more likely to be in insecure work than not, you know, so what is Morrison offering to the people who he needs these votes? He needs he's either got these seats and he needs to sandbag them for this election, 
or he's got to try and win them off Labor so that he makes up, because he will lose probably a couple in Queensland. They're at a high watermark in Queensland. And WA is looking like it will be pretty good for Labor. So New South Wales may well determine the outcome of the federal election. Morrison has nothing to offer these people at all. So what does he do? He tries to stir up anti-China sentiment, anti-union sentiment. Anti-China sentiment's a really interesting one in Sydney. Yeah, God, crazy. I think that's a ploy for, for WA, frankly. I think that's about WA. But the, the other one I want to touch on, because we've, we were sent, uh, a listener sent us a copy of a book called This Is Me, which was written by a teacher and, a, and an AEU member, Australian Education Union member named Anthony Amarina. And it's a, it's a heartwarming picture book, really, about high schoolers being true to themselves and coming out to their parents and, and you know, finding themselves. Um, and, it, you know, we got sent that on the same day. And we get sent stuff by listeners all the time, and it's great, and we really love to see it. But we got sent that on the same day that Scott Morrison doubled down on his attack against trans children. Oh, it's extraordinary. And and my analysis of this, and, it, and it, other people have a similar analysis, I'm not, you know, uh, I'm not coming up with, uh, you know, E equals MC squared here. It's it's political analysis. Morrison is trying to get people in Western Sydney in particular who were the largest proportion of uh, no votes to marriage equality uh, to focus on post-material issues because he has nothing material to offer them. Okay, so for those of you who haven't heard the term post-material um, it, it literally – so material things are schools and hospitals and roads and, and wages and, and wages jobs. and jobs and things that in, in involve physical buildings and the transaction of, of money and resources. These are material issues about how we live our lives. When we're post-material in political terms, it's when we start talking about cultural issues. Specifically, we call this particular kind of political campaigning – a culture war. Woo, culture war. And, of course, the American Republican Party has been doing this for years and years and years and years and years. So we can say to the people in Kentucky, which is like, what, the 49th poorest state in the United States? It has 49 of the 50 poorest counties in the United States. Yes, but its Republican senators have still enjoyed these massive margins because they go to the, you know, socially conservative people of Kentucky every election and go, we will stop abortion, which, of course, they have never done, but they promised to do it and generating a lot of propaganda about evil feminists coming in the middle of the night to steal your pregnancy and feed it to Baal, Beelzebub, you know, Astaroth, I mean, pick the hill demon of your choice. Whatever it is, the scare campaign is to create in-groups and out-groups to, to make the in-group feel very scared of the out-group and create this whole notion of a devilish enemy that comes in the middle of the night and destroys everything you hold dear. And the culture war that Scott Morrison has chosen is... Trans children. Trans children. So in the appalling religious discrimination bill that was cleverly shafted by some extraordinary tactical work, thank you, Anthony Albanese and co, not to mention, you know, various other crossbenchers who participated and defectors from the Liberal Party who helped to gut that legislation. 
the this is like Scott Morrison's big issue, right? And it's a big issue. We've discussed it on the show before um, because it's about his it's partially about his political funding base yeah. and groups like the Australian Christian Lobby, the kind of people who are represented by those particular kind of politics, bed down on the issues of um, essentially transphobia, homophobia and anti-feminism because they come from an extremely bigoted right-wing worldview that privileges this sort of white male patriarchal God wake up in the morning and always be superior to the majority of the population kind of idea. They are hierarchical and misogyny, transphobia and homophobia are really ancient ways of preserving, you know, the hierarchy and status of Mm -hmm. a very small group of very yucky, hateful, dangerous, mean and cruel individuals. Absolutely. Wow, I just really went off on one, didn't I? <laughs> but you're absolutely right. And Morrison- Needs their money. He needs their money and he is trying to position people to vote for things that are not about their material interest. Yeah, because- Because we know yeah. if they, if people vote on their material interest in the next election, he will get wiped out. Wages are going backwards. Job insecurity is through the roof. Didn't organ- order enough vaccines in time. More people have died in aged care than, than needed to die in aged care. Problems with the NDIS. The privatisation of public services has resulted in massive amounts of waste. Gave us free childcare, then took it away. There's no federal ICAC. And we see time and time and time and time again the profiteering. amazing wealth of Angus Taylor and the Taylor family. It, and it becomes increasingly evident that that there are, there can only be a very small number of people who are materially better off because of the Morrison government. Like that company that got the $1.8 billion? How much was it? There yeah. was a company. You were talking to me about this the other day and Senator Tim Ayres from the Labor Party brought it up. I think it's his most successful tweet ever and was just powered across the internet by sheer force of outrage. That the, the Dutton's department had given $1.8 billion to a company that had no assets, no revenue and no staff uh, with no due diligence process. When they did do a due diligence process, it was discovered uh, to have been on the wrong company, uh, but the company that got the money uh, was actually a donor to the Liberal Party. Oh, my God. Is everybody shocked? What an amazing turn up of coincidences. So many coincidences. So many. So we know that the Morrison government, and you and I have talked about this before, and lots of people are talking about it, you know, desperate, desperate to avoid a federal ICAC for not just for that reason that we've just outlined about no. the company. With sure, no- there are lots of people in the Liberal Party who are desperate to avoid a, uh, to avoid a federal ICAC. I mean, we know this because they're in trouble all the time. I mean, let's just drop some names. Stuart Robert, Michaelia Cash, Susan Lowe, Angus Taylor. Like all of these people have been involved in practices that deserve at least a bit of script. Bridget McKenzie, like a little bit of scrutiny could probably be quite. Oh, look, and if anybody has the time, inclination and bottle of whiskey handy to watch Senate estimates where they do get exposed to a little bit of scrutiny and you start to see. The defensiveness. The defensiveness, but also the reality of these things, like what Tim Ayres uncovered, uh, you, you just go, you know, we need a little bit more scrutiny. A little and, bit and more. We need yeah. a little bit more scrutiny. We need to get beyond the veil of the family trust here. We need to get into 
What's actually going on? Who did put that money into the blind trust for Christian Porter? These sorts of questions. I mean, wouldn't you love to know? I mean, I'd love to know. They, they deserve an answer, these questions. They do deserve an answer. So the Liberal Party are literally running scared from an ICAC. And the the post-material issue they have chosen to pursue is the harassment of trans children. And that was in the Religious Discrimination Bill. They wanted, you know, these Christian schools to have the right to police the gender identity of children, which is just, I mean, nutty, nutty, cruel, dangerous, harmful, all of these things. Psychologists, psychiatrists have said this again and again and again. We're talking about a very small but very vulnerable group within the community. Mm, mm. Just so people know, transgender Australians only make up 1% of the population. But... The Morrison announcement is about backing a private member's bill by a Liberal senator for Tasmania who's one of those random nutters they put on the Senate ticket. And, you know, they stuffed the Senate full of their ideologues, people who probably couldn't get elected, you know, if it actually came down to votes from ordinary people. In the Senate, people tend to vote for the party and the brand. And if you vote Liberal, this is the kind of person who gets elected. Is a person from Tasmania, I love how my brain has just edited her name out. I can't remember her name either. doesn't want to retain that information. But her big thing is that anti-discrimination laws are bad because they cancel out free speech rights. And her her most notable contribution to public debate was about complaining about the participation of transgender women athletes in the Olympics. By the way, no transgender women athletes won um, medals at the Olympics, but this was her big issue that this distorts the playing field and the rest of it. So she has got a private member's bill to forcibly exclude transgender children from sport. Let's be really clear here. These are people who do not care about a level playing field. These are people who have consistently reinforced privilege, whether it's through funding of private schools, whether it's through funding of private colleges, whether it's through lopsided industrial relations laws. They consistently fund, support, legislate for, regulate unlevel, uneven playing fields. They have no interest in a level playing field. No, and they try and cloud this by saying, oh, this is about the, this is about women's sport. Now, not a lot of people really know much about the participation of transgender women in competitive professional sport. And one of the reasons are is that even though transgender people are, are 1%, 1% of the population, they're not 1% of professional athletes. In fact, you're looking at one of the most marginalised groups in society who are not represented at any, like, proportion reflecting their existence in these structures of representation. That's not a thing that's going on. But we're supposed to believe this scare campaign and, like most terrible ideas pushed by the Liberal Party, this has been tried and tested and messaged and focus grouped in the United States for years and years and years. We're all supposed to be terrified that transgender women are are coming with superior, inherent superior, advantages to come and steal all the trophies on girls' sports nights. Like This is what we're supposed to believe. So we're going to police the exclusion. And I'm like, this is the first Australian Prime Minister who has ever gone to an election on a promise to stop some children enjoying sport. I'm just like, you have got to be joking. And, of course, it is this, and because he's supporting, he's described it as a terrific idea to police the participation of transgender well, of people out has. of sport because he's a disgusting apologist for privilege who's got some kind of weird obsession with gender that, you know, is dominating his policy agenda. And it's like of all the things going on in Australia, 
how is an already underrepresented group who who in entirety represent 1% of the population so deserving of so much attention, let alone this entirely unearned, unearned scorn? It is sickening. And I just want to be very clear with people about the process of actually transitioning. If you go through a gender transition, like you do not increase your sporting ability. It is a complex and demanding physical process. There is loads of science. And can I I just suggest that if people are seeing these arguments on the internet, be very aware that the the lobby of you know just social policing bigots who like to involve themselves in this hateful, marginalising nonsense will repeat all kinds of talking points already rehearsed by the American right and will push propaganda at you. By the way, people, I can see you on my Facebook page. I know what dog whistles you are using. Well, Van, I mean, you've you've summed up the situation, I think, pretty pretty clearly. There, you know, Morrison is desperate. He's latching on to scare campaigns, picking on kids, campaigns. terrific. Picking on kids, picking you know? on marginalised communities with a disproportionately high tendency towards suicide because of social marginalisation, terrific. This this, and we're only going to see more of it, you know. And I really, you know, Sally McManus, the leader of Australian Unions, tweeted. Uh, I think it was yesterday, we're going to see a pretty desperate election period. You know, there's 12 weeks until there has to be an election and already we're seeing nastiness, we're seeing attacks on children, we're seeing attacks against working people. Like the people who just 12 months ago the Liberals were holding up as heroes of the pandemic are now the villains who dare go on strike for a wage that keeps up with the cost of living. Ha, 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 just lock them out and tell everybody it's a strike. Ha, 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 ha. It is just, it is. Desperate. Desperate. It desperate. Is desperate, anti-democratic, anti-truth, anti-reality. Uh, and it is, like, it's actually awful. It's awful to see any major political party, anybody really, but it's certainly not the leader of the country, decide that vulnerable children should be picked on, to decide to lie about what's going on in the workplaces of this country. And and I'm going to use, on that point, Van, I want to talk a little bit about what, what actually is going on in the workplaces of this country, because there's lots of media hype today saying, oh, wages have gone up. Oh, look, we're, we're on the verge of a wage breakout. We're on the verge of a wages boom and all these sorts of commentary Gosh, about this. Gosh, what a coincidence just a few weeks before an election. But it's total, utter nonsense because, yes, wages have gone up, in inverted commas, but so is the cost of living. And wages are measured against inflation. And when you look at that, when you look at the cost of something you buy at the supermarket, the cost of petrol, the cost of anything you buy now is going up. And there is a reality here that some in the media, and certainly Morrison doesn't want to acknowledge, and that is that working people in Australia have suffered the largest wage cut at any point in the last 20 years last year. 2021 was the biggest wage cut of the last 20 years. And keep in mind, the GFC was in that period as well. You know, it is absolutely insane. And why is that Why is that real wage cut happened? Because the price of everything's gone up. So yes, we can say 
Wages went up 2.3%. Oh, but they got rid of the carbon tax in order to cut electricity bills, Ben. Everything was going to be dandies and that wasn't that. Remember Abbott, who was actually the first prime minister of this particular government? It's yeah. the same government. Yeah, it's you the know, same government. They, they, they recast the lead role every couple of years, but it's the same people with the same values. And, you know, we went, we went through this whole, oh, yes, well, we're going to get cost of living under control. Cost, well, cost of living of, is not under control. Cost of living is out of control. 3.5% is how much the cost of living increased by last year. Wages increased by 2.3%. That is a cut in your actual Salary, the amount of money you have to spend on the things that you want to buy is less now than it was 12 months ago. Morrison is responsible for this. Morrison and Frydenberg have a responsibility for this because they control the levers. They could have had more secure employment. They could have given workers more power to negotiate better pay increases. They didn't do any of those things. Or free childcare. But free childcare. Literally transformative for Australian families. And you know what's interesting? That little window of time when there was free childcare, do you know what the cost of living increase was? What? It was negative. There was a negative cost of living increase. Around the world, inflation was starting to go up just at that time. And in Australia, it went down. It went down. And what did they do? They took it away. Of course they did. But this is what I love. You and I did a session for our friends, the Fabians, who are progressive political uh, talks and ideas for a very famous, yeah. exists all over the world. And we were talking about insecure work and talking about how the political problem that Morrison has is that in his raw panic at the start of the pandemic, when there were unemployment queues going around the block where a lot of Australians had their very first experience of Centrelink and my, my, wasn't that memorable. Mm. Um, and they and they adjusted the economy. Free childcare, okay, we're going to pay for all the pandemic stuff and we're going to do them JobKeeper and, you know. And they started with, a, no, we're not going to have a wage subsidy. Oh, look at all the queues around Centrelink. What are we doing? Well, we've got to do a wage Oh, no, the union's called for a wage subsidy. Don't call it a wage subsidy. What can we call it? Uh, I don't know, keep people in jobs. JobKeeper. Oh, yeah, let's do that. What will we do? Just throw money at business. Yeah, these things, though, showed what they actually, and we were saying this last night, yeah. this is what they have the power to do. Like government have the power Absolutely. to provide infrastructure and to exert control over the economy. You know, like this whole notion that, you know, government are just there to, what, turn the lights on and off in the Parliament House building or, you know, pick on trans children or any of the disgusting things that Morrison represents. No, no, no. We can have these things. We did have them in that lovely window in the pandemic. Like when they doubled the rate of job seeker and unemployed people actually had enough money to live on for the first time in years. And it goes to the point that... We've seen time and time and time again the ideology of let it rip, let the market decide, fail the Australian people. Yeah, I'd like to be slapped by the invisible hand of capitalism, yeah. You know, we've seen the CEO, I think it was of Coles, might have been of Woolworths today, come out and say the shelves won't be fully stocked until April. You know, that's the supermarket. Now, I remember when I was growing up, the idea of people queuing for bread or toilet paper or the essentials and supermarket shelves not having what you needed was more commonly associated with failing states. Now, it's commonly associated with day-to-day life under the Morrison government. At the same time, the price of those things that we can barely ever find is going up. This is a failure of economic management. 
because the reality is the Morrison government doesn't believe in managing the economy. They believe in letting billionaires and CEOs simply decide what's in the best interests of them and their shareholders, and that that will probably somehow magically trickle down into an economic outcome. Mm, Magical trickle-down economics, which has never worked anywhere. Not in 40 years. In 40 years we've had trickle-down economics, and it has not improved anybody's prosperity apart from the richest people in the society who own everything anyway. Now. When things are good and times are easy, the no one notices. No one notices. You don't notice. You don't notice necessarily that there are some billionaires over there doing whatever billionaires yeah, do. But they're on their yachts, Ben. Right? They're they on got their yachts. big yachts. What is it about billionaires and yachts? I don't. I don't ever want to think about what it is. What it is about that. But when times are bad, you notice the yachts, man. You notice the yachts because they're they still got the yachts. We ain't got toilet paper, but they still got the yachts. Right, and this is Morrison's fundamental problem: is he can go out there and spin record low unemployment and you know highest wage highest wage growth in whatever period of time it's been. But we also have record underemployment, and we also have the highest rates of inflation for twenty years. So, so we're not getting enough hours to work. At the same time, things are more expensive and the government are not pursuing a wage policy that would allow us to afford the things that we need to buy. It's a really, it's a, it's a really solvable problem. It is, <laughs> Let me be it really is clear directly about this. solvable problem. It is, a, it, is, it is a directly solvable problem. The, the solutions are working people need more power in law to negotiate better pay rises, and that means changing the structure of our industrial relations system. I'm in. Right? Like it just, that's what we need to do. Um, this idea that, you know, oh, but it's all technology drives all these things and it's like we talked about this with the Fabians. Gigs have been around forever. Like Yes, hence the the origin of the term gig. Like I am in the arts. We have always gigged. Secure employment in the arts is not an actual thing. But what you have managed to do is through Mia, you have actors having a strong unionized presence, being able to negotiate good, decent terms that allows them to survive between gigs. You know, and this is the point. That's my union, Mia, really high union density, which is the reason why actors get paid well and work in safe places. This is this is the point that you can actually create these mechanisms and systems that accommodate seasonality, fluctuation, peaks and troughs in supply and demand. You can accommodate those things. What the let it rip trickle-down economic model does is it shifts all of the risk and all of the cost for those things onto individual workers. And technology platforms that engage in digital sham contracting are just putting a fancy new label on something that's been going on since people lined up outside the gates of a cathedral construction site hoping to get paid, you know, a penny for the day's work. These things have been going on since there has been paid labour, right? This is not new. None of this is new. What we used to have was strong regulation, a balanced and level playing field, and that's how we get wage increases that are more than the cost of living. 
That's I'm literally begging everybody if you're considering, uh, you know, voting in the federal election, you have to because we have universal enfranchisement. Can you please think about your Senate vote and how the difference of a of being able to get a progressive government with the capacity of po- passing progressive legislation that enables things like workers' rights and collective bargaining and fairness in the dynamics of the workplace to be introduced relies on having a Labor majority in the Senate and handing over the power to govern the workplace to independent small parties, people who may not know the explicit politics of and might have nice pamphlets and pretty branding, like allowing that obstruction to occur in the Senate actually stops the the progress of progressive legislation. Absolutely. The progressive legislation we need to r- restore the 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 <laughs> destroy to restore the vision of Australian egalitarianism that should exist in the bedrock of the workplace. And then on that note, I want to move us on to talk about one of the other big things that's happened in the last few days. And and you've been very fired up about this. I mean, as have I, but probably not as much as you. And, and that is this concept that billionaires are going to solve climate change. For no, us. no, that's yeah. not a thing. It's not I, a thing. I want, I want billionaires are, are never the solution, but they are always the problem. And I want to, I want to break this down because people probably have already guessed. We're talking about Mike Cannon Brooks and the private equity fund Brookfield, who launched. Uh, a preliminary offer to buy AGL and really went on a three or four day media frenzy talking about what they were going to do was buy AGL and speed up the shutdown of the coal-fired power stations. And they had an extra $20 billion on top of the $8 billion they were prepared to pay for AGL to make this transition happen and to help the workers and there's going to be all these new jobs. Anyway, of course, AGL rejected the offer because the offer – and I'm going, to, I'm going to give you the numbers and you can make your own decision about the offer, right? So they offered $7.50 a share. Today, the shares are worth $7.66. So already, they're essentially offering less. A year ago, the shares were worth $10 a share. AGL has annual revenues of $2.6 billion. So a $7.50 a share offer isn't good. Like, frankly, it's not surprising the board said no, uh, and it's not surprising they suggested not to. AGL's already announced plans to split the company in half. Now, this is not, I'm not endorsing the AGL plan or any other plan or one way or the other, right? What I'm saying is this is less about climate change and environmentalism than it is about which group of people make the money whether it's AGL and their current shareholders and their current executives or whether it's Mike Cannon-Brooks and the investors in Brookfield. I think that's actually what this is about because, quite frankly, AGL already has a plan to split the company in two. It already has announced plans to shut down the coal-fired power stations. It has already announced plans to move into renewable energy. Brookfield has already had a bid of $17 billion approved for buying up the transmission wires, Osnet transmission wires. You know, uh, Cannon Brooks is already a partner in a $22 billion solar farm that's supposed to be built in the Northern Territory to supply electricity, not just to Darwin, but also to Singapore. You know, this is 
this is actually less about climate change and more about which group of billionaires get to make the most money. Yeah, I mean, somebody made the point that if this was altruism on the part of the Atlassian Supremo, Mr. Cannon Brooks, that he would buy storage batteries for every house in Australia, it would cost less money. And, you know, there we are, problem solved. But that's not how capitalism works. Capitalists got a capitalist. And at the end of the day, what capitalism is about is about the accumulation of more and more and more and more capital. And there are opportunities within the market for people who've got the capital invest to get a return on that investment that enriches the capital they already hoard. And it just, I flipped out about it yesterday because as as you and I remarked, like there was a there was a social media conversation with people who I'm quite sure would identify themselves as being on the left. Who yeah. were just like, you know, not all billionaires. Like he's a really nice guy, and he's just doing so much for the environment. And it's like, I whether he's nice or not yeah. is beside the point. You know, like many royal families throughout history were perfectly delightful people who still hoarded all of the political rights and authority for themselves at the expense of entirely exploited and indentured, often like enslaved population. Why that's not nice doesn't really come into it when we talk about the material conditions of existence and who gets to control them. I made the point yesterday that the policy space that you cede to Mr. Cannon Brooks today, you also cede to Tweety Forrest and Jenny Reinhardt and Clive Palmer and people who also have the capital to determine how they think productive relations should look like. As an environmentalist, I'd like to remind everybody that climate change is a collective problem. Just because you are poor, you are not spared its effects. In fact, you're more likely to suffer it even worse. Yes. And the idea that we've really got to get our heads around is that collective problems require collective solutions. Mm. The, the necessity in terms of climate action is to have democratic participation in government and representative governments who are invested with the state stakeholders of entire populations to make the decisions that will bring everybody along with them and maximise outputs in the interests of everybody else. That's not how capitalism works. Capitalism is not a charity. People do not hoard capital so they can just give it away. It's not really how the logic of the particular system works, right? It was really interesting to see people engage in this discussion basically saying, well, I'm prepared to put all that to one side as long as I get the the outcome on climate change. And and it really struck me that this was very similar to views that people held when Rupert Murdoch was starting newspapers. Yes, right? I'm wondering if people remember the rhetoric around, because, you know, 40 years ago when he was, you know, buying up might tabloids. Even 50 years might ago even now. be 50 years ago. I mean, it's just all passed in such a horrific blur. But, you know, there was, I remember very iconic photos of Rupert in his stripy shirt, yeah, his yeah. 1980s shirt and his big fat tie, you know, and, and Rupert Murdoch was just, he was going to bring media to the people and he was going to take on the establishment media and tear down the squatocracy of media barons like Packer and Fairfax. Oh, and it was so revolutionary and not all billionaires and look where we are now. And this is the this is the great challenge we have is that it's easy. Billionaires can afford PR departments. They That's can. one of the challenges. They can. And 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 they, they can afford to dangle a quick and easy solution in front of people's face. Right? But at the end of the day, 
there is not a quick solution. There is no Batman. Batman is not a thing. That's Hoping for Batman does not make Batman happen. Batman is a character from a comic book and is very entertaining but also should not exist. Like yeah. the reason why we have, you know, the reason why we have uh, public policing and government control of police units is so some lunatic in a cape with a pointy mask on is not randomly murdering people in the streets and calling it justice. Right, that is not actually preferable. And I'd like everybody to think about the participation of billionaires in the project of climate action in the same kind of way. Like just as we don't want pointy mask person murdering randos and would like the process of justice to be under democratic control, so we really need to deal with the collective problem of climate change in a collective why? And I, there was an excellent thread on Twitter recently that was talking about another one of these bros, and they're always bros. The bros are getting into this stuff. Oh, he couldn't possibly bad be bad. He's got long hair or he's, like, on the internet or he's into crypto or whatever. Like, somebody made the point on Twitter recently that, Elon Musk is, of course, one of these sort of Batmen that people go to in this idea that we just we just need some kind of individual genius. His father had some kind of stake in an emerald mine to just come along and solve all of our problems individually and he's so brilliant, whatever. The problem is Elon Musk's idea of climate action is the electric car. Now, I'm pro, you know, electric yeah, cars, yeah. but I'm much more pro not dying in a climate fire. And the reality is that climate action, the level of climate action necessary obliges us to look at transport not as an individual car issue but as a mass transit issue in a redesign of cities not based around roads issue, like the actual tarring of roads, the space that cars take up. Like these are all contributing problems in terms of a climate catastrophe. And to get out of it, we have to look at a a massive reorganisation of urban spaces that are not around every single household having a car. But while you see the policy space on the environment, to, to Batman, to individual millionaires are going to come and say this, you know, climate action, they make in their own image. And it's not necessarily helpful to the rest of us. Everybody getting an electric, electric car, oh, buying one from one of Elon Musk corporations is not actually the solution. And they crowd out other ideas and intersectional policy responses that are actually needed in the conversation to benefit you know, the majority of people as opposed to the tiny percentage of billionaires. And this apology for, oh, yeah, but he's a really nice one, is just. Look, I I get it, right? I get it. I understand it's hard. It's hard to conceptualise these large existential threats and and it's comforting to think that somebody else who you can see has been successful is going to deal with the issue. He's going to solve the issue. Because they're brilliant and they're better. Do you right. know what that but- sounds like? Do you know what that sounds like exactly? That sounds exactly like the excuse that people made to vote for Donald Trump. Oh, he's been so successful and it all is. of his businesses are great. And literally sitting on the internet yesterday watching people who swear to God that Donald Trump is the devil and everybody who votes for him is, you know, some kind of like, you know, learn. profound. Learn, nitwit and the rest of it. And then, but oh, yeah, but Mike Cannon Brooks is going to save us. It's like this is Trumpism. What you are actually committing yourself to here is a Trumpist worldview. And it's – but you can understand how people want that solution, right? It's wrong 
And frankly, the idea that we pick this billionaire over that billionaire as the solution is wrong. And frankly, billionaires are taking advantage of a space that has been vacated by political leaders, particularly the current political leadership of Scott Morrison. Because they were bought by billionaires. Who do people think is funding the Liberal Party? Why do you think there is no meaningful action on climate in this country? Whose interest does that serve? Absolutely. Absolutely. Right? But what we have to remember, I think, Van, is that we have to remember that simply backing one group of billionaires over another group of billionaires doesn't serve our collective interest at all. Which lethal and, plague do you prefer? Yeah, right? I'm a bubonic fan. <laughs> Whereas, I just think it's so visual. But, and, and this is where I come back to. It's let's, really nice. No, but Van, this is where I come back to. Let's look at what's actually going on here because there's, there's reality in the numbers, right? Brookfield, the massive private equity firm that Mike Cannon-Brooks is partnering with to do this, is actually interested in having a fully integrated control over the power system. They've already got permission to buy the transmission poles and wires. They'll then, if they bought, bought AGL, they would then have the ability to generate the electricity. We know Mike Cannon-Brooks is in the electricity generation business. This is not about solving climate change. It's about which billionaire's individual vision of the world gets to be the winner. And by extension, which individual billionaire gets to run the world. That's actually what it's about, right? Mike Cannon-Brooks owns the Utah Jazz. He didn't give it back to the fans. He didn't buy a basketball franchise and go, now I'm going to institute a democratic model like they have in Borussia Dortmund in the German top division of football where the, member, where the members own the club. He hasn't done that. He's He likes basketball. He likes the Utah Jazz. He owns the club. But what's wrong with that, Ben? Because billionaires work heaps harder than anyone else, especially, you know, like people who work in hospo who would have no idea what it's like to literally work cleaning up people's like bodily messes, you know, until their hands bleed. Well, they work really hard. And if they're going to solve climate change by making themselves really rich, isn't that good? The solution to climate change is not to go back to the same class of people who created climate change and say, can you now fix this, please? The solution to climate change is for us to have collective ownership of it, collective ownership of the decisions that are required to fix it, and collective ownership of the outcomes. That means supporting those communities who will have some transitional pain and also sharing the benefits collectively of moving to clean energy, not privatizing the benefits to one group of billionaires and then collectivizing the pain among the communities that will suffer. And, you know, I'm more than happy if billionaires, if these amazing philanthropic billionaires exist... And, you know, maybe they do because they inherited their money and are guided by the inherent logic of capitalist greed. I just think they should pay more tax. In yeah. fact, pay any tax because we know a lot of them just don't. And a lot of them pay less tax than your average hospital worker. That's the reality. That is a absolute ironclad reality. You know, so when you see people like Mike Cannon-Brooks or Jeff Bezos, Jeff Bezos gave $10 billion to climate action, apparently, except it was in Amazon stock to the Amazon Charitable Fund, of which Jeff Bezos is the chair, and there is no public accountability for how that money is spent. That's 
what we're talking about, right? So, look, whether AGL gets bought out or doesn't get bought out, whether it divides into two separate companies or doesn't. It should never have been sold by the government in the first place and they did so at the instigation of um, billionaires. Exactly right. We can't go back to the billionaires and now ask them to solve the problem they created because they'll just find ways to profit off the solution. But, Van, there is some good news in the climate <laughs> space. Um, it's sort of fun. This is a fun piece of news. There's been a whole bunch of fun environment news. They're recycling uh, the blades of wind turbines into bridges and various bits of repurposed urban infrastructure. That's good news. Awesome. But I like the I'm, – I'm into algae. I'm joining the algae revolution so um, photosynthesis through algae is, it turns CO2 into oxygen, yeah. right? We know that. Everybody, like, yeah. that's what second grade science. Yeah, yeah. Um, in Holland, they're really, I mean, not a lot, rather a lot of people, not a lot of land. In Holland, take the whole uh, climate change thing quite seriously. Yeah, given a lot of them the, live underwater, like yes, under sea level. Under right? sea level, which is a problem. Yeah, the dikes of Holland are a famous thing for a reason. When it, they break, people drown. Yeah, lots of people, and it's bad. The country could disappear. You know, and with that as a motivating factor, they're clearly doing a lot of work in the climate space. And one of the things yeah. they're doing is they're using algae because it literally sucks carbon out of the air. And there are various ways you can trap algae, mm. uh, trap carbon um, through algae processes. One of the things that they're doing um, and they've been doing since about 2018 in quite a serious way is they're looking at bioplastics in Holland because everybody yeah. knows I'm obsessed with plastic and how totally evil it is. Nobody better than you. And they are using literally um, algae to make a hard sort of plastic equivalent and using it through 3D printers to make everything from shampoo bottles to furniture to vases with the idea that whatever you need, you can just go to your local 3D bakery and get made out of an algae product that will literally take carbon out of the air. So it's not just- Fantastic. It's not just carbon neutral. It's literally carbon negative. That's great news. This product that I'm really interested in this week is called Fol. F-U-L, and it's a bright blue soft drink. Right. And it's made of spirulina. Spirulina is this nutritional supplement made from algae that's like this blue-green colour that everybody was telling everybody to take in the 1990s. It is super neat. It's as 90s as Nirvana. Right. And as it turns out, spirulina has this massive carbon capturing quality. And uh, Dutch food technologists were looking at, you know, the metaphor of a food production facility, specifically a brewery, and what were the ways that they could metaphorically sort of connect the exhaust pipe, the carbon output, um, and and negate it or improve uh, Capture it. Capture Capture the carbon. And so they've made a soft drink out of spirulina, and it comes in like a white peach and a lemon and ginger flavour, and it's bright blue. It is the colour of spirulina. But um, for every kilo of soda that they produce in this process, essentially recycling through their brewery, um, they process carbon at the rate of 1.5 kilos. So so that's carbon capture and storage through soft drink. And I have to say, Van, you know, when you told me this story, all I could think was the Morrison government has given how many billions of dollars of our money to coal miners, to to not miners, to coal barons, 
to capture carbon, and here we are in Holland. They've captured carbon using spirulina and, turn, so- and turned it into a soft drink. Yeah, that's literally what's <laughs> going on. This is what happens if you invest in innovation, technology, yeah. science, independent science and research. So people tend to invent things. So, yeah, 1.5 kilos of carbon taken out for every kilo of carbon you put in is pretty impressive because it's about algae can cover water surfaces, you know, and yeah. it's encouraging the use of this particular stuff. It's fantastic news. It is pretty amazing. Thank you, people of Holland. I think it's great. And I think it's really good to see the concept of carbon capture working. Working, yes. Like, because you, when you, whenever you looked at the science of it, you're like, it has to work somehow. <laughs> but, of course, giving money to billionaires who make money from emitting carbon was not the answer. No. Just to go back to an old- Yeah, uh, just this whole idea of giving giving billionaires more money is generally not how you solve problems. But scientists have come up with a solution. Look, I'd like to personally apologise to anybody who feels personally attacked by my rage at the capitalist system. It's not personal. Any billionaires who feel they've been personally targeted as a result of this podcast. Look, I'm sure you're very nice and I'm sure we'd all have a lovely dinner party together, but at the same time, I- absolutely resent your existence and I'll devote the rest of my life to destroying the things that you value. On that fantastic note, I think it's time we do a shout out to the fantastically awesome supporters of this podcast. Uh, From what I can see, none of whom are billionaires. So that's unfortunate for them, I guess. Yeah, somebody said to me on the internet the other day, like, you're just jealous because you haven't met any. And it's like, actually, maybe a lot of my resentment comes from working in hospital in London where I had to serve them. Yeah, yeah. Look, you And know, that, children, was how I became a socialist. <laughs> so, you know, the week on Wednesday continues to go from strength to strength. Listener numbers through the roof. We've obviously got all these great supporters who've come on board to – Help us get the message out to more and more people. As you can hear, the message is pretty loud and clear. <laughs> Join your union. Don't be a billionaire. Don't be a simp to billionaires. You know, let's yes. do what's needed. Avoid to- servitude. <laughs> Don't volunteer for it. It's pretty straightforward stuff. Um, I want to also give a shout out to our good friends at On The Job, uh, the podcast of the Australian Trade Union Movement, because I know at some point in the near future we are going to be on there talking about some of these issues. Uh, But really, Van, I want us to go through and acknowledge our cadre supporters. These are people who are making a $20 a month contribution to help us get the message out. How fast can you do it? Uh, Leona Gibbons, someone, at Lee Archer, Linda Cartwright, at Leanne Shingles, Louise Moran, Donna Chapman. I don't have Twitter. My name is Susan Myers, at Kerry Nash 20, Billy 3 McCabe, Cara and Will Robinson, Marissa Simon, at Cadigal, Lauren and Ash, Matthew Hadley, at Narunga Man, John Sharpen, Peter Barth, Aaron Rollins, Louise Watson, slash, at Red, White, Blue, Lou. They're our cadre uh, supporters, Van. Our extending the reach supporters. These are the great people who give $10 a month to help get the week on Wednesday into more ears and more eyes. Graham Oxley. Well, if you're staring at a podcast, you're probably doing it wrong. <laughs> hey, look, we're trying to make video content. Graham Oxley, Beck Cody, Tracy Lucas, Belinda Bravo, Sandy Honan, at Gail underscore Vest, Greg Martin, Trina, Amy Fawcett, not on Twitter, Sarah, and K2E. Bo Sullivan, Elaine and Andrew, Ivor Spillett, Jennifer Berkeley, Andrew Bryan, Tamara James, Peter O.C., Linda, Sam Hadid, 
Keir Patterson, Lizard Twizzle, Buncombe Basher, Katie Ward, Daniel Slavin, at the real Neville Longbody, Sandy Baumgart at Not Sandy B, Melody Patterson, Renee McGee, Stuart Munn, Claire, Joe Lapino, Steph, Rachel Fitzpatrick, Pauline Bate, and of course, I want to give a big collective shout out to all of our Buck a Week contributors who really are chipping in a Buck a Week to keep the week on Wednesday on the air. We don't have time to mention all of you, but we thank each and every one of you. Your contributions make this possible. We'll keep doing it and we'll keep making it free to download and listen for as long as you keep being part of it. Van, that's the week on Wednesday. The dog is asleep on my lap. (laughs) If you're in Canberra on Monday, go along and check out Van and Andrew Lee. I'm at ANU. Um, I'm doing an event which I have promoted on my Van Bottom Facebook page uh, talking about extremism and the rise of the crackpot right in Australia, and it should be great. Of course, builds on the work that you've done with QAnon and On, A Short and Shocking History of Internet Conspiracy Cults, your best-selling non-fiction book. I have a best-selling book! Reads like a thriller, except it's true. Yes, comes out as an audio book on the 11th of March. And in the week of the 4th to 10th of March, I'll be lurking around Adelaide Writers Week. I'm doing a couple of sessions there as well, talking about this stuff. So, so many great ways to engage with us. Of course, you can check out the weekend wrap on Sunday afternoon as well. Check out our social medias. Don't forget to share, like, comment. If you do want to become a supporter, check it out. Buy me a coffee slash week on Wednesday. As always, don't forget to join your union, australianunions.org.au slash wow. That's W-O-W. They will help you find the union that's right for you. That's it for this week. Love you, Vanny. I love you too, particularly in that awesome T-shirt. Look at that for a callback. Bye. Bye.